for men, for fathers in particular, looking like we don't have it together or looking like we have no idea what we're doing uh, is really our greatest fear. Uh, So let me say to all of the fathers in the room, this church is a place to where it's okay to not be okay. We are a group of fellow strugglers who do not have it all together, okay? We, we need each other. We need to call out for help. Uh, we, we need to say, I have no idea what to do with my two-year-old. Um, he, he won't stop taking off his pants in public. Will someone help me? Okay? We are a group of fellow strugglers. We are a group of people um, who, who can be vulnerable in front of each other. And so my hope from the beginning uh, of planting this church is that this would be a place to where men in particular would leave their masks at the door. Amen? And, and come in openly and honestly saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. So men, happy Father's Day. You can relax. Okay? Nobody here has got it all together. Okay? That, that's my Father's Day gift to you, is, is just to let the cat out of the bag. We don't have it all together. We need Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. As a church, uh, we've been traveling through the book of Acts. Uh, this makes week eight. So we, we took seven weeks to walk through chapters one and two. Uh, and so we're going to continue on walking through. And, and the very beginning of this book was incredibly, incredibly exciting. Um, what most authors want to do when they're telling a story or uh, when, when a filmmaker is, is making a film, what they want to do is they want to come out of the gate with a really exciting beginning to kind of grab your attention. That way they can hold you throughout the whole story. Okay? And what an amazing, exciting beginning we've seen in this book thus far. It, it begins with the ascension of Jesus. That's pretty exciting, right? Jesus shows up on the scene. He lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. He then resurrects and he hangs out with the disciples. He he spends 40 days with them, teaching them how the whole Bible is about himself. Then he ascends into heaven. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. He ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father where he is today. And he tells the disciples, hey guys, wait. Okay, so, so then we saw this anticipation, this 10 days of waiting, just building that anticipation for the Holy Spirit to come and to usher in the new age of grace. The Holy Spirit comes, mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, right? They, they start preaching, and, and all of the people are hearing them in their own native languages, and then 3,000 people get saved. It, I mean, this is exciting stuff. And then what we see is the very beginning of the church. What were they doing? Well, they were gathering together to hear the apostles' teaching. They were fellowshipping, sacrificing for one another. They were breaking bread in each other's homes. And we get this beautiful picture of the launching of the church that was 120, and it goes to 3,120 in one day, that this first century Galilean peasant leader, Jesus, and his band of misfits, the disciples, launch a massive world movement, which we are still a part of today. An amazing, amazing beginning to this book. Now, what we're going to see today is something that happens that eventually ends up leading to the persecution of the church. And a reoccurring theme, what we're going to see over the next couple of chapters is the church not being crushed under persecution, rather growing under persecution. So, so we, we see a guy get healed 
The, the, the governing authorities don't like it very much. They begin to oppress the church. But instead of the church shrinking and, and going back, the, the church actually grows under this persecution. So that's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. Okay? So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, first, we're going to uh, just walk through the narrative. Okay? We're, we're just going to walk through verses 1 through 10 just like we always do. I want to I take us to that place. I, I want to get our, our mind's eye focused in on this story. And, and, and hopefully we can kind of bring some, some color uh, to this story. Next, I want to talk about the immediate implications of it. Okay? Meaning this. A guy gets healed. Is healing for today? Or is healing something that only happens in the book of Acts for this specific time and is not to be um, replicated or duplicated? Okay, so, so is healing for today? If the answer is yes, then how are we to view modern medicine? I mean, if God heals, why go to the doctor? Okay, so... so so I want to talk, I want to look at the story, then I want to talk about the immediate implication, then what I want to do is, is kind of pan the camera back and, and I want to look at the universal implications, meaning that oftentimes the Bible will talk about um, leprosy, uh, people who are crippled, um, disabilities and diseases as a picture to the human soul. So I want to look at the narrative. I want to look at the immediate implications, so we're going to talk about healing, and then I want to look at the universal picture, essentially the picture behind the narrative, and, and I want to talk about the condition of the human soul, and, and what's the picture behind the narrative, okay? So, so that's where we're headed today. You guys ready to go? Okay, okay. Um, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 um, in, our, in our text today, okay? Verses 1 through 5. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him and John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, we know that the apostles and the early church members were in the habit of going to the temple. We, we saw that last week. It was a part of what they were doing. The question is, what are these early believers doing in the temple? These early believers knew that Jesus was the last and, and only sacrifice that they needed. So the temple was a place to where the Jewish people would gather to, to offer sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins. But these early Christians, they, they didn't believe in the sacrifices of goats and bulls and birds and rams. That, that was over for them. They had seen the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in their place for their sins. They, they didn't need that. So, so what are they doing there? Well, they're going to share the gospel. That as, as the, the priest leads in the, the, the lamb, they can say, hey, let's talk about the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That's what they're doing there. In addition, we see Peter and John going to the temple, which was the precedent set by Jesus to go out in twos to go evangelize. Okay, So Peter and John are certainly going to the temple to pray, 
But they're also headed to the temple to share about the one who has been slain before the foundations of the world. Now, we've been introduced to the first two characters of the story. Now we're introduced to the third character of the story, which is a man who we don't know his name. We never find out his name. But what we do know is that he is a man that has been lame from birth. Meaning this, the only way that he can get a meal, the only way that he can get something to eat, the only way that he can get any type of money in his pocket is for people to give money to him. And so likely what would happen with him is he would be dependent on his friends and his family to daily carry him to the temple and lay him at the gate so that people would come by and give him alms or money, would, would give him something. He is utterly and totally dependent on his family to carry him there. He is totally and utterly dependent on other people to give him money because there is no way for him to earn any type of income. And listen, th these people in, in the first century, they, they're not rolling around in cash. His family likely would not have been able to support him. And so the way that he contributes to the family is to be laid at this gate and to beg for Alms. His survival is founded upon the generous sacrifices of others. He's laid at the beautiful gate. We know uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus writes about this gate and says that it's absolutely gorgeous, uh, that, that its worth far outweighed any of the other gates leading into the temple. And this would have been a great place and a great time for him to sit and ask for alms. Do you see what time it was? It said it was the ninth hour. Well, that's 3 p.m., meaning it's the end of the workday for them. Now, how they got wages in that day was they were paid their day's wage at the end of the day. They, they didn't get their check like, you know, bi-weekly or whatever. They got their day's wage at the end of the day. So what would have been happening is, okay, I, I want you to get this picture in your mind. They've just gotten done with work. They've gotten their day's wage. Now they're on the way to the temple to pray before they go home. So here is this beggar sitting at a really great spot in the temple at a really great time of day because worshipers of God should be generous people, right? And they've got money in their pocket and they're coming into the temple. So this beggar is set up at a great place and a great time to receive alms from the people going into the temple, okay? Now, maybe the beggar raises his eyes and he sees Peter and John and, and thinks to himself, I, I've got an easy mark here. And so he begins to, maybe he begins to rehearse the phrase that he said thousands of times. Hey, just a few shekels, just a few shekels as he sits and, and people pass him by. Likely Peter and John have passed by this beggar at this gate hundreds of times going to the temple. Likely this beggar has been passed hundreds of times by Jesus himself as he repeats his phrase, just a few shekels, just a few shekels, as he sits and waits for the generous offerings of other people. But something was different about this day. Something was going to happen to him and something was going to change his life forever. I believe at this moment the, the Spirit began to speak to Peter. And, and what Peter does is being led by the Spirit, he engages this beggar sitting at the gate. You see what he says to him? He says, look at us. 
what Peter did there is he broke all social protocols for beggars. You you ignore beggars. You pass them by. You, You don't look them in the eye. But what does Peter do? He says, look at us. And so what does the beggar do? Well, he, he gives them their attention. He's expecting to receive something. He's thinking, man, these guys have probably been saving up their alms for months, right? And I'm, I'm about to receive something awesome here. I mean, this guy is breaking all social norms, all social protocol, and he's saying, look at me. He's looking me in the eye. He, he's thinking any moment now he's going to go in the back pocket of his tunic and just pull out a huge wad of cash and hand it to me, and it's going to be great. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Look at verses 6 through 10. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Raise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Much to the beggar's chagrin, Peter leads with, I have no silver and I have no gold. You have to understand that the disciples, these apostles were Jesus men. Meaning they did life and ministry the way Jesus did. Meaning Peter and John aren't walking around in $5,000 suits and $500 shoes. They didn't zoom into Jerusalem on their private jets nor did they roll up in Lamborghinis and Ferraris, okay? These are common men. Now, they're not poor men necessarily, but they're common men. They're common men. So, so yeah, they, they're not rolling around in cash. They, they just don't have a ton of money living in million-dollar mansions. That, that's not Jesus' way of doing life and ministry. What, what we see here is these men saying, hey, I don't, I don't have cash, man. But, but what I do have, I'm going to give to you. And here's what he says next. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth. At this point, there is no question on the origin of the power of the miracle. He, Peter totally robs any power from himself. He, he, he pushes that off to the side. And at this point, there, again, there's no question on in what name, in what power, in what will this is taking place. It is not Peter's will. Peter did not say, well, I think I'm going to heal the beggar today. It was not his plan and it was not his power. By saying in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he is admitting this is God's power, this is God's plan, this is God's will, not mine. In this moment, Peter is simply the tool in the hand of God to perform this miracle. So he says to him, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, wake up and walk. And in a very um, Peter-like thing to do, in a very impulsive thing to do, he grabs the guy by the hand and snatches him up. Just get up. All right, I'll, I'll stand you. Just grabs him and snatches him up. Now, what Dr. Luke, who is 
writing this book does now is he uses words here um, that are never used again in the New Testament because they are medical terms. The, the word foot and ankle, the, the, the words that are used there um, are, are medical terms. So, so what Luke likely did is he went and interviewed this guy, and, and the doctor's going, all right, let, stick that foot up here. I want to take a look at it. I want to see what happened to it. So it says that his foot and his ankle got fixed, and it says that he leapt up. Now, sometimes when, when that phrase is used in the Greek, it, it means to snap together in place. So again, I want you to get this picture in your mind. There, there are tons of people kind of just filing into the temple, the regular hustle and bustle of the day. There sits this man that he sat there day by day by day. We know from chapter 4 um, that he is 40 years plus. He's 40-something. Okay, So th this older guy sat at the temple day after day after day, the regular hustle and bustle of life. And Peter puts the brakes on all of that, being led by the Holy Spirit, and says, hey, look at us. Grabs this guy, and as he snatches him up, his feet go, <laughs> and just, they, they snap into place, and he stands up. And then what happens next? Well, he doesn't go into six months of walking rehab, does he? No, no, he, he walks, then he leaps, then he starts praising God. What's he saying? Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, is he saying that in a whisper? No. Now, again, I want you to get this picture in your mind of a very religious people, a very religious culture going into the temple at the ninth hour to, to, to praise God in our very solemn way. And, and here comes the beggar skipping by everyone on the way into the temple shouting, praise Jesus, right? He's having his own little personal revival camp meeting, and everybody else is standing there solemnly praising God. What happened in this guy's life was an was a absolute miracle that spurred him on to joy. That, that caused him to outwardly, overtly, loudly worship God. What's so curious to me today is in the church, I mean, it doesn't look like a bunch of healed people to me. Oftentimes our worship services don't feel like a room full of healed people. It feels like a room full of crippled people. But I know that many of you have experienced a healing greater than a physical healing. You've experienced a spiritual healing. And so I'm expecting you guys to come unglued. I've been healed. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. But oftentimes we stand and solemnly, mm -hmm. how are you doing? Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Band sounds good today. Mm -hmm. So th this guy gets healed. He goes into the temple, jumping up and down, praising God. Now, I, I want to ask this question from the narrative. Okay? He says, and this is my old, old uh, my King James coming out in me. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. Okay, that's, that's got to memorize from King James. I apologize. Um, if he doesn't give him silver and gold, the question is, what does he give him? That, that's the question that's in the text, okay? So, I'm not going to give you silver and gold, but what, what I have, okay, so, so Peter has something, and he gives it to him. 
the result of what Peter gave him was healings. So what did he give him? Okay. Now, it's answered in verse 16. We're going we're gonna to walk through the rest of the text next week, but let's just skip forward. Look, look at verse 16, and, and I think you'll see what it is that Peter gave him. Look at verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter gave him faith in Jesus. Okay, now, I, I want you to see the flow of how this worked. We just said that it was God's power, it was God's plan, and God's will to heal this man. It was not Peter's power, it was not Peter's will, but Peter gave him what he had, which was faith in Christ. So, here's how it worked out cosmically. God the Father says, hey, Jesus, um, what about the beggar by the beautiful gate today? What do you think? And Jesus goes, hey, man, if you like it, I like it. Whatever you like, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. The father and Jesus go, hey, spirit. He goes, on it. He then leads Peter to impart the faith that he had onto the beggar. That, that's how it happened cosmically. That, that was the flow of it. Again, this isn't Peter's power, Peter's will. Peter's so awesome. He's able to just walk around throwing faith to people at will, willy-nilly. But it came from God the Father through Jesus, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit by Peter's hand, giving him faith to believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. And that faith healed him. And, and he got up and began to praise God. That's what he gave him. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I'm going to give you. He, he gave him faith in Jesus. How was he able to give him faith in Jesus? Because it was God's plan. Because it was God's plan. Okay. The immediate implication is healing for today. Should we as Christians ask God to heal people when they're sick, when it's cancer, when it's terminal, when... When you have a sore throat, when, when your kid breaks their leg, when, I mean, should we as Christians today, at those times, in those moments, stop, lay hands on people and say, God, you are the great physician and we're asking you to do what only you, you can do. God, will you heal this person? Okay? Let's define healing and then I want to look at some scriptures. Healing is... Okay, God working above the laws of nature to bring about physical restoration. Okay, healing, how we're using it here is healing is, in, in this instance, God working above the laws of nature. They're his laws anyway. He made them. He can work above them if he chooses. It's God working above the laws of nature to bring about a physical restoration, whether that be uh, a sickness, a disability, a blood disease, heart issues. It's God intervening and going, fixed it. Here's another way um, to, to word it. When someone goes from sick to well and the how cannot be explained in natural terms. The person goes in, they have a severe heart defect. The doctor says, we don't know what to do. You have a defective heart. 
Somebody prays over them, they come in next week, and the doctor goes, it's fixed, and I don't know how. That's physical healing. That's physical healing, okay? So, let's look at some text. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 9. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What the Apostle Paul here is doing is he's talking about um, the spiritual gifts that believers get when they become Christians and enter into a life within the church. So people get spiritual gifts. They're given spiritual gifts to, to help the church, to serve the church. Here's what it says. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit utterance of wisdom, to another utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another by faith the same Spirit, to another gifts of, what's that word? Healing by one Spirit. What the Apostle Paul just said there is, there are many gifts in the church. The Holy Spirit shows up by, by his will and says, I want you to have this gift. I want you to have this gift. Some people get the gift of knowledge. Some people the gift of wisdom. Some people the gift of faith. And then what does he say there? And some people are given the gift of healing. That's what he said, not me. He said that. So there's one scripture that we can look at and say, should we as Christians pray for healing, ask for healing? What's the answer? Yes. Some will say, well, I mean, that's, that time's over with and gone, and, and those gifts have ceased now, and we're, okay, show me a text. Show me a text where you think these gifts have stopped and are no more, and we'll talk about it. The, the truth is there's not one. So if the gifts are given here in the New Testament for the church, I have every reason to believe that they are still active, working, and moving today in the church. Here's one more. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That is a clear command. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church to lay hands on you, to anoint you with oil, and to ask God to heal you. Listen, we do that here. We do that here. We have asked God to heal people. Now, some of you in your mind just went, well, did he do it? Not yet. Again, it's not my job to do the healing. My job is to do the asking. My job is to do the praying. My job is to do the believing and leave the healing up to God. Amen? Okay. Is healing for today? Absolutely. Yes, it is. We should pray for healing. We should ask God to heal people when they're sick. Okay, if God heals people, then what is the place of modern medicine? I mean, if God does heal people, and he can, and he works out his will, then why should we ever go to the doctor? When you get sick, you don't need antibody, uh, antibiotics. What you need is more faith and prayer. If, if you get cancer, you don't need radiation. What you need is faith and prayer, right? I mean, because we're, we're just going to believe God to, to do this because God heals. Okay, let me tell you a little story. 
there was a man, um, and, and he was watching the news. And uh, the, they came on the news and said, there is going to be a massive flood rolling through your town. And the man says, God, would you rescue me from this flood? And a few moments later, a knock at the door. He opens it up, and it's his neighbor in a four-wheel drive pickup. Hey, man, the, the water's rising. Get in the truck. And the man says, no, no, I'm going to wait for God. God God's going to rescue me. Neighbor says, all right, have it your way. The water begins to rise, and so the man goes outside of his house, and he gets on his roof. God, save me. And a man comes by in a boat and says, hey, dude, get in the boat. He goes, nope, I'm waiting for God. God's going to save me. You see where the story's going. So the, boat, the guy in the boat goes on. All of a sudden, the helicopter comes flying over, and he's standing, clinging onto his chimney. And, and the guy in the helicopter says, hey, grab the rope. And he says, no, I'm waiting on God to save me. And then the man drowns and dies and goes to heaven. And the man says, God, I thought you were going to save me. He says, what more do you want? I sent you a truck. I sent you a boat and a helicopter. Modern medicine is a common grace of God. How do you think these doctors get their ideas? It, modern medicine is a common grace of God that should be used to its fullest extent. Should we pray? Yes. Should we believe in faith that God will heal? Yes. And there are limitations to modern medicine to where God can go way beyond what modern medicine can do. And that's what we pray for and ask. But until then, take aspirin, okay? Because, again, th this is a gift of God. It's a grace of God that, that he has put here on this planet um, to, to be used. And he still wants us to rely on him, trust in him for healing. Okay? So, again, immediate application. Um, ask. Ask us. Come talk to us. Every single week, we stand on the stage and say this. If you need prayer today, we will be in the back. We say that all the time. If you're here today and you're like, man, that's, that's me, I've, I've come today and, and I, I want healing, please, 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 come talk to us today. Come to the back during the, the time of response and, and let the leaders and the elders of this church lay hands on you and, and pray for you and, and, and let's believe God together. I'm not making any guarantees or any promises. The healing power is in God's hands, but we are responsible to ask God and to pray, right? Okay. The universal implications. What's, what's the picture behind this narrative? There sits this man, utterly helpless at this gate, totally dependent upon God to show up and do something. What's, what's it communicating? Well, the, the Bible often uses leprosy as a picture of sin. It often uses people who are crippled to point to the condition of the human soul. Man is born in sin. We are born sinners. That's what happened at the fall. Every man born after Adam is born into sin with a heart condition, with a heart problem, with an issue deep within our souls that we ourselves cannot fix. We cannot solve it. We are sinners from birth. Okay, My little daughter, Lydia... Why does she insist on doing the very thing I tell her not to do? Don't touch that. Right? She, I didn't teach her to do that. She does it instinctively. Kids are little sinners instinctively. 
We grow up to be big sinners instinctively because it is in our very nature to be just like that crippled man. That that is the condition of the human soul. Mankind is absolutely helpless. Listen, that's the presupposition of the gospel. If we don't need help, then the gospel isn't very good news. If we can look at God and say, hey, I've got this, that robs the goodness of the good news, doesn't it? So humanity is absolutely paralyzed in knowing God, meaning this. No one is seeking God. Man under sin is paralyzed, just like the paralyzed man. Man under sin is paralyzed to knowing God. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside And they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man is totally paralyzed in knowing God. Why? Because he's not looking for him. Man under sin doesn't want to know God, is not seeking after God. The God that he is seeking after will serve his will and his needs. That's what humanity is searching for. Humanity is not searching for the God of the Bible. And even if he did search for him, in all man's wisdom, we could not find him. 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That one, man isn't searching to find the God of the Bible. And even if he did, if he was trying to search to find the God of the Bible, in all of man's wisdom, we could not search him. We could not find him for it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You want to get into some interesting reading? Um, Read scientists' debate over where life originated from. You, You want to talk about the folly of human wisdom? You want to talk about the most brilliant minds in the whole world arguing over where life originated from? They want to talk about evolution. Great, talk about evolution. My question is, where does the first single-cell organism come from so that it can evolve? Science in all its wisdom does not have a good answer for this. They can't say, God created it. They refuse because man in all its wisdom can't acknowledge a creator God who created all that we see. In addition, we are just like the man at the gate because we are paralyzed in living life. Man outside from God's plan and purpose is absolutely useless. Mankind, all of humanity, this is what we're doing. We build sandcastles in front of the rising tide. That is the definition of humanity apart from God. Building sandcastles in front of a rising tide. Who cares if you climb to the top of whatever building, if if you climb to the top of whatever job, if you build it, if you create it, if you do all of this stuff, it doesn't matter because you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten and all will be lost. It's often said that hearses don't pull U-Hauls. So how can... How can we humans have any purpose in life if this is all there is? In addition, we are just like the man at the gate because we are paralyzed in our fight against sin and temptation. 
all humanity can do and all man can do on his own strength is trade one sin for another. Jesus says this in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Don't believe me? Try to stop sinning. We can't do it. The condition of the human soul is just like the man at the gate, unable to know God, unable to have any purpose in life, and unable to do anything to overcome sin, temptation, and death. So what does the world offer in the face of such a pervasive problem? As the man sat at the gate, what did the world do for him? Gave him alms. They gave him alms. But did the alms fix him? Did the alms heal him? No, it didn't. All it did was just offer some momentary relief for his lifelong of suffering. Yeah, maybe he got a good meal that night. So what? He had to be carried back there the very next day to sit and ask for more alms. This is exactly what the world does. The world acknowledges that we have a sin problem. How do I know that? Well, go into any bookstore. What's the largest section in any bookstore? Self-help, right? We are, the United States, the biggest drugs that are being taken right now are antidepressants. We realize that there is a problem. There's a problem. And so what the world does is offers alms. Here's sex. I mean, you can get it more readily now than ever. It's a click away you can get it just to offer a little alms to give you a little temporary relief from your life of suffering. Here's a job. Here's a career. Here's money. Here's success. Here's power. The world just keeps throwing alms at us to try to fix a problem that it simply cannot fix. And the world offers its alms. And the condition of the human crippled soul keeps taking those alms only to be left unfulfilled and to go back the very next day and simply ask for more. This is the picture and this is the condition of the human soul. You guys ready for some good news? Because that's some pretty terrible news. <laughs> what happens is God in his predestining plan before the foundations of the world decided to use Peter to heal this man in the same way what we can say to the condition of the human soul that we are utterly hopeless and helpless is God intervenes. God is the God who chases us. God is the God who comes after us. God is the God who, before foundations of the world began, said, these are my children, and I love them, and I'm going to chase them, and I'm going to love them. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were the beggar at the gate. You were crippled, you were broken, you were downtrodden, you were left helpless and hopeless. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that the Spirit is now at the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by, the, by nature were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here's the good news. But God, being rich, in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen to this. 
by grace you have been saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We are the beggar at the gate. All we can do is find temporary relief to our pain and suffering. But God steps in, intervenes, and reaches down and grabs our broken self and snatches us up. This is God. This is the God that we sing about. This is the God that we love and serve. How good of God is he to do this? This says while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not like we got better. It's not like we started on this long course of going to church and reading the Bible and doing all the right things. And then God finally says, okay, you're good enough. Come on in. He looks at us where we are in our sin, in our filth, in our brokenness and says, I love you. You're mine. And he saves us and heals us. This is what God does. So now I say to you, are you here this morning and, and you realize that about yourself? I'm, I'm the beggar. I'm the beggar in need of healing. Well, this guy had faith in Jesus and he was healed. Many of us are here this morning and we know God has healed us uh, because we believe in him and we love him, but there is still a crippling in our life, a crippling of pornography, a crippling of pride, a, a crippling of alcohol, a, a crippling um, of, of, a, of a broken marriage, a, a crippling of just feeling like you're under the weight of, of shame, of stuff that you've done in your past. What's crippling you today? And do you want to ask God and pray for healing today? I've been praying all week that God would heal somebody today. Now, I, all I can do is ask. All I can do is ask for God to heal. Right, right before I walked on stage, I, I said, God, would you, would you send your Holy Spirit just to heal somebody today? I know somebody is here that is feeling broken and hurt and has carried in the weight of the world with them. And they feel crippled and crushed under it. And so I, I've just been asking God all week. I've been asking God all morning, man, would you, would you send your Holy Spirit just to heal somebody today? Would, would you heal a broken marriage today? Would, would you heal someone's soul today? Because listen, the healing of the soul is so much greater than the healing of this beggar's feet and ankles. You see, when Jesus returns, we're all going to get resurrection bodies anyway. But the healing of the soul is greater so, so I ask you today, what, what's crushing you? What's crippling you? And today, would you use this time of prayer? I'm gonna offer it just like I do every single week. Would you use this time of prayer to come back and say, I need healing today. And, and let the elders of this church, let the leaders of this church lay hands on you and ask God to do what only he can do. Would you do that today? Would you do that today? Would, would, would you just... Would you just not worry about what people think? Would you just say, look, I need healing. This is what's wrong with me. I'm broken in this area. I'm insufficient in this area, and I need help. I need healing. Would somebody pray for me? Would you do that today? We'll be in the back. We'll be, we'll be ready for you to come. Again, I make no guarantees. God is the one who heals, but it's our job to pray and believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this awesome story, this 
historical narrative that we see in the book of Acts um, of you predestining before the foundations of the world to heal this beggar who sat at the beautiful gate. Father, I pray for those here this morning that need healing. Father, that they would uh, put aside their pride, that they would acknowledge that the, the condition of their soul is just like the beggar at the gate, that apart from you they can do nothing. They have no power in themselves to fix their own problems. What they need is power from on high. What they need is the the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, again, I, I ask you like I've been asking all week, like I asked this morning. Father, would you heal someone today? Would you heal a marriage? Would you heal a broken relationship? Would you heal a wound that maybe has been carried by um, man, just the wounds that, that get passed down from our father figures? Would you heal the father figure wound today? Would you, would you heal the, the parent relationship today? Would you heal the father-son relationship? God, would you just send your Holy Spirit to do this work? That, that's what we're asking for. We, we ask and we pray. We believe in faith that you can and know you can. So, Father, would you, would you do that for us today? Would you heal someone? That, that's what we're asking for. Father, we know that the, all of the plans are in your hands that, that you know when to say yes, you know when to say no. And so, Father, we just submit ourselves to uh, your will. We, we submit ourselves to your plan. We thank you for your ultimate plan, which was to send Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And we look to that cross and we cling to it this morning, knowing that in it there is life. There's life in the cross. There's life in your death. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.